Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Pigeon, Elephant, and Piggy, the beloved characters created by author and animator Mo Willems, have arrived at the Children's Museum of Atlanta with their own interactive exhibition. Today, we'll stop by the Children's Museum for a preview of The Pigeon Comes to Atlanta. Also, with her paintings of flowers, New Mexico landscapes, and skyscrapers, Georgia O'Keeffe has been described as the mother of American modernism. Later this hour, We'll listen back to an interview with the author Dawn Tripp. Her novel, Georgia, is based on the life of the extraordinary American artist. First, an extraordinary musical artist. If there is one word that conveys violinist Gil Shaham's artistry and personality, it's warmth a meltingly beautiful warm tone from his violin, equally matched by his sweet disposition. Gil Shaham is with us now to talk about his new recording on the Canary Classics label. Gil, thank you for Zooming in. So happy to be with you, Lois. Always a joy. Now, your new album with the ensemble The Knights features two war horses, the violin concertos of Beethoven and Brahms. You opened the current Atlanta symphony season of virtual concerts with the Beethoven concerto, and I was surprised to learn that this is your first time recording the Beethoven. Why now, Gil? You know, it's a good question, and I don't know the answer. I'd been playing this piece for more than 20 years now. Early on, I I would shy away from performing the Beethoven Violin Concerto. When I started out there, there was this kind of maybe slightly intimidating thing. We all feel so passionately about the Beethoven Violin Concerto. We all love the Beethoven Violin Concerto, myself included, you know. We're all very opinionated about the Beethoven Violin Concerto. And uh, I guess 
it was only in my late 20s, early 30s that I started performing it uh, two, three hundred years ago. And <laughs> then I discovered what uh, what so many other musicians before and after me had discovered, which is there's there's really no greater joy than to play this music. You know, what, what, a, what a revelation, what a treat, what a, what a miracle of music. How lucky are we to, to have this and to be able to play this? The piece is quirky in the way it opens with four notes from the timpani solo. Would you guide us through what follows? I love that you use that word quirky. I think that's exactly right. I, I always say, kind of a sports analogy, I, I say he was in the zone. Yes. You know, in 1806, he was hitting one three-pointer after, oh, maybe, what would you say, <laughs> home run after the other. Um, just one timeless masterpiece after the other. The, the violin concerto, the triple concerto, the fourth symphony, the, the third symphony, fourth piano concerto, then I think the cello sonatas are all, all around the same time. I think maybe cello sonata was a year later. But I think it's, I, anyway, I think that one's interesting because it's the same rhythm as the violin concerto. Yes. And, and as you say, yeah, you know, and violin could just, some, some similarity. I think it is odd to start a piece with four drum beats, you know, like there's some precedence with Haydn's symphony, but I think there is an element there of Beethoven starting four notes on the drums, what is this? It's not even music. What is it? You know? And immediately he turns, by contrast, to this chorale, this kind of sublime cantabile chorale in the winds. And I, I forget who it was that mentioned that Czerny's metronome marking for the Beethoven Violin Concerto, actually the piano version of Beethoven's Violin Concerto, was quarter note equals 126, which is the same metronome marking as the Marseillaise. And I do think there is something about that feeling of a revolutionary march, you know? There are the four drum beats, then the wind band. Yeah, there is a feeling of a slightly military. Oh, Gil, that's fantastic insight. I'd never thought of that. It makes such perfect sense, given that Beethoven was this great enlightened thinker and uh, such a deep humanity and equality for all. Yeah, quite revolutionary. I absolutely agree with that. I feel he was a great humanist. What do I know? I'm a violinist. But um, 
from what I've read, I believe he was a great humanist and he was very much in that spirit of, of the enlightenment and the revolutions of that time. Later, when the strings pick up this music and the violins, they, they repeat the very quickly, like the, like the timpani. It, it maybe sounds even more militaristic. And then finally, the final transformation, you know, the, the rondo melody, we hear it and we feel like we've heard it before, which of course we have. But even within the piece, even within the piece, we've heard it before. And it comes as the most joyous resolution of that initial D major, D minor chord. And, and we, we hear that 6 8 and Gil, even if one can't see you playing this your sort of irrepressible smile comes through in the music in the rondo here It's the most joyous piece, you know. I remember as a child, uh, we had a recording at home of David Oistrak playing this. And I used to just listen to it over and over. I, I must have been 10 years old, maybe, maybe younger. I just loved it. It's a, these sections where the violin would accompany the orchestra in those beautiful triplets. I used to listen to it over and over again. And then I remember the great Henrik Schering coming. Mm and performing Beethoven Violin Concerto. And I, I was so taken with that performance. I went to every rehearsal, every one of the repeat concerts. This, this is one of those great pieces that really, it changes people's lives. Well, hearing you describe how you were sort of a groupie for the Beethoven Concerto as a kid and as a young adult, it jives with the story in the liner notes about Brahms and how he could not get enough of the Beethoven concerto. Of course, he couldn't listen to it on a recording, but went to hear it as often as he could. And 
I'm curious because there's always so much thought that goes into your programming and presentation of repertoire about why you chose to pair the Beethoven and Brahms concertos on this recording. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is we love to play both of those people. <laughs> that's, that's clear. As you say, it is true. You know, the Brahms Violin Concerto is a piece that I believe is autobiographical. Brahms frequently wrote about his experiences and about the people closest to him. And I, and I believe this piece is very much about his friendship with the violinist Josef Joachim. They were lifelong friends and their relationship, really the starting point was an occasion, as you mentioned, when Brahms was 14 years old and he attends a concert in Hamburg where the program is the Beethoven Violin Concerto. You know, and, and it is Josef Joachim playing. You know, they did go on to become lifelong friends. When they began working on Brahms's Violin Concerto, they ended up premiering New Year's Day in Leipzig in 1878. And the program was the Beethoven Violin Concerto and the Brahms Violin Concerto. And here you are. Absolutely. Each one of these pieces is a whole universe on its own. For, for us, what happened was I heard the Knights play Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica, and I just thought it was the most remarkable performance. And I went backstage and I said, Eric, why don't we play the Beethoven? Let's play the Beethoven. And we started playing the Beethoven and we started talking. We said, well, why don't we do the Brahms? Oh, well, Gil, we had the pleasure of attending the concert. Mm maybe about five years ago, when you performed with the Knights at Emory. And uh, you seem so ideally suited for one another because here they are, just a brilliant ensemble with amazing technique, and yet they're just having a lot of fun. You know, they impart an absence of pretense and formality that you share. And I know the word electrifying is something that critics often fall back on, but that, that evening was electrifying. Oh, thank you. I do love them. It's like you say, they are masters of music. They, they, they're so accomplished. And what I love about them is that uh, maybe we don't take ourselves so seriously. and We try as much as we can to think outside the box and to have as much fun with our audience and with ourselves as we can, you know? Well, it comes through. I did a little preparation before speaking with you today. I have a little story that was related by Yehudi Menuhin, Sir Yehudi Menuhin, in his essay for the bound edition from the Library of Congress of the autograph of Brahms' Violin Concerto. So at the historic premiere by Joachim of Brahms' Violin Concerto on New Year's Day, 1879, Brahms, who was to conduct, appeared at the last minute before his ill-humored Leipzig audience, <laughs> his attire in disarray. The effect of the indecorous informality of his gray street trousers was in the course of the performance to be outdone 
by the unfolding spectacle of those same trousers slipping beyond the point where the most supportive spectators could prolong <laughs> their suspension of disbelief. Brahms had forgotten to fasten them. The concerto ended before the anticipated sartorial denouement, <laughs> but the scandalized Leipzigers had been utterly distracted and there is no record that they were so much impressed by the newly offered composition as by its author's narrow escape from the consequences of his personal neglect. Who knew? <laughs> Sartorial denouement. S-M-H. <laughs> S-M-H. <laughs> this is what, a century before Janet Jackson's um, wardrobe malfunction? A wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> I love it. I read that as of April 2020, you and your wife, the wonderful violinist Adele Anthony, are members of the Bard College Conservatory of Music. Have you been able to teach in person? There were weeks when people could go in person. This was in the fall. And then it was quickly shut down. Mm. Yeah, but I could not be more proud to be part of that music faculty and part of that school. I'd never done anything like this before in my life. It's, it's the most idyllic setting. Yes. And I'm surrounded by idealistic, brilliant scholars and um, masterful musicians and beautiful artists and very, very special people. Oh, that's great. Okay, whenever we talk... It's a little bit like retelling the Passover story. I must make you groan and remind you that the first time we met, I believe, was 92, and you were performing with the Atlanta Symphony. But you also were signed to perform at Spivey. And yes, you and Akira Aguchi were performing at Spivey Hall, Cheryl Nelson, who was then executive director of the hall, told me that she just had so much fun because you and Akira were enjoying going up and down the glass elevator 
at the Atlanta Hilton downtown. She had to pick you up because you hadn't gotten your driver's license yet. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, so I must remind you of that. It's <laughs> My God, it's been almost 30 years, Gil. That's right. Yeah, 30 years. Yeah, thank you for today. It's a joy, and congratulations on this recording. It's exquisite. Grammy Award-winning violinist Gil Shaham. His new recording of Beethoven and Brahms Violin Concertos has just been released on the Canary Classics label. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Pigeon, Elephant, and Piggy have arrived at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. The beloved characters created by Mo Willems have their own interactive exhibition on view through May 9th. City Lights engineer Shelley Canavy stopped by the museum to chat with Karen Kelly, director of exhibits and education, about the Mo Willems show and other museum offerings. The Pigeon Gets a Cookie is just one of the interactive components of the Mo Willems exhibition at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. The activities are based on the author's books and characters, including Knuffle Bunny, Naked Mole Rat, and, of course, Pigeon. When I went to check it out, I started by asking Karen Kelly, the Director of Exhibits and Education, what the museum is all about. So the Children's Museum of Atlanta is a hands-on, minds-on educational museum that is all based on the philosophy that kids learn through exploration and play. We've been open since 2003, and we renovated in 2015. We, um, in normal times, we get over 200,000 visitors a year. But right now during COVID, we are being very, very careful. So we have three sessions, usually a day. In between the sessions, everything gets cleaned and disinfected. So the next group comes into a bright, shiny museum. And even as you're walking through, you're going to see people actually kind of wandering and cleaning today during the session, just to kind of keep it safe. Um, masks are required for ages two and up. But it is such a fun place to work and such a fun place to play for the kids. They really get to be themselves and explore. We do programming all the time. Story times and music and movement to get the kids moving. Upstairs we have two separate spaces. We have a science space where they can do different science experiments. 
this month they are making their own robots, Wigglebots, up at the science bar. And then in our arts and craft studio, right now they are doing salt painting and making rockets as well. We're also celebrating Women's History Month and also science this month. So you'll learn a lot about science. So we're doing rockets also in our makerspace. And you can learn about some terrific women scientists who really helped to change the world at our science bar, all on a kid level. Why did you want to bring the Mo Willems exhibition to the museum? There are a lot of reasons. Mo is deservedly one of the most popular children's authors ever. His books are terrific, and partly because they're based on philosophy really similar to the museum. You're not, he doesn't direct or tell children what to do. He likes the outcomes to be evolved through the stories and help the kids figure things out. It's very much like what we do at the museum. It's also a lot about our younger audience and the sort of social emotional learning they do and how you learn and grow by making decisions and choices. This one is such a fun exhibit for that, all kinds of great things to do. But like all of our exhibits that we get, it's a layer. So your child was playing over at the, the pigeon gets a cookie. That's all about developing fine and gross motor skills and pulling the thing up to the right place. Um, but also all about the fun of doing it. So it has all these kinds of fun layers in it. This comes to us from the Pittsburgh Children's Museum. The other piece that I always love about them is they have several ways the kids can really interact and change the exhibit. So for example, we have the Thankorama, where you spin a wheel and then you write a thank you note to the person it lands on. It could be your teacher or your mom or your museum worker. And then you put it up on the wall. So all the thank yous go up there. In their art studio, they have wonderful art projects. So the kids can either do their own cartoon characters or they can learn to draw like Mo Willems. There's even a cute little video that he tells you step-by-step on how to draw the characters. The other thing is it's fun to play in, you know, I mean, part of this time, especially during COVID, it's so important to let your brain have fun. We're all so stressed out. It's been a year. (laughs) And so coming here is just that lets the positive endorphins flow in the kids' brains and the parents' brains as well, because hopefully they're knowing the kid is having a good time and learning, and it's a safe space. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys were able to open in some capacity because that is super important. What do you think is the most popular part of this particular exhibit? The Mo Willems exhibit? Oh, that's a really good question. I see a lot of people doing art. Actually, if you turn around behind us, a mom is doing art. But I think, honestly, the pigeon hot dog launcher is very, very popular. But also, I feel like the pigeon and the bus and the little, they can put on, strap on little buses and run around. That has also been something that I've seen kids spending a lot of time doing. That's the nice thing also about our exhibits and the traveling exhibits. A lot of things for kids with different interests. So what's the most popular part of the museum? Oh, well, that's um, our giant ball machine. This came when we reopened the museum. It has the longest stay time and the most fun of any of our exhibits because you have to track the ball around through the six simple machines. And it really works for kids zero to 99 years old. Everybody has fun playing it. And they stick around and do it. So they're learning science concepts while having a really great time. Our second most popular place is our cafe, which was built out for us by Waffle House. So it's all like miniature Waffle House real equipment that they've done for us. And kids and families love it. They spend tons of time in there. It also, I watch parents and they're like, well, we're gonna be very careful. I don't wanna order anything that's bad for me. So the parents are putting lessons in the fun and the kids feel very in charge, that kind of empowerment of running the deli. What can we look forward to coming up after Mo Willems has moved on, oh, what is next? We're going to have Thomas Edison's Secret Lab. It's a science exhibit. 
it's based on the TV show, so lots of fun, hands-on science for kids zero and up. I think actually adults will have a lot of fun in there too, because most of us, especially me, don't remember science after eighth grade. <laughs> so, so it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I didn't realize that you guys are closing for an hour every other hour. Right, so, uh, so each session is two hours long, and then we close and clean, and then we reopen again, and a whole new set of people can come in for another two hours. So on Saturdays and Sundays, we have three two-hour sessions with an hour in between for cleaning. Yeah, we've had to do a lot of workarounds here. You won't see, we used to have books on the museum floor, but because you can't really disinfect paper, so there's no paper. When we hopefully, when we all get vaccinated and we're back to whatever normal looks like, our new normal is, we will move the books back on the floor because it's a very important part. But we like the session model. We may keep it. It seems to be working for our, very well for our families and our kids. Yeah, it is. And then it's not so crowded right. all the and time. It's not you so know. crowded. That's a lot of our, our response of it is because we're limiting attendance to be, um, you know, be able to six feet distance. It Parents have loved it. Some of our stuff is actually designed for some of that social emotional learning, like the ball machine I mentioned earlier, there's a crane, it only has two seats on it. That's actually for an emotional reason. It's good to learn that you have to wait and you have to share. It's not the key thing, but it's actually an intentional part of the design. City Lights engineer Shelley Canavy with Karen Kelly, the director of exhibits and education at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. The Pigeon Comes to Atlanta is on view through May 9th. The musical stairs are part of the Children's Museum's permanent collection. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. For Women's History Month, an extraordinary artist. Georgia O'Keeffe has been described as the mother of American modernism. Her paintings of flowers, New Mexico landscapes, and skyscrapers grace the permanent collections of museums around the world. In 2016, the author Don Tripp wrote Georgia, a novel based on O'Keeffe's life that focuses on her individualism as well as her tumultuous and passionate relationship with the photographer and art promoter Alfred Stiglitz. When I spoke with Dawn Tripp after the book's release, she explained why she wanted to present the story as fiction. You know, I feel there are many stellar, insightful third-person works that have been written about O'Keefe, but I believe that fiction can get at a different kind of truth, a more experiential truth that allows us to enter a character story and be changed. Facts and the historical record are always, you know, they're always incomplete. And to me, fiction is another means of cutting past the surface of what we think is true to reshape our understanding of the weight and impact of a life. Hmm. And in Georgia, I really wanted to get 
I really wanted to get into her head, into the, you know, that sweeping and intimate, tumultuous passion between her and Stieglitz. And I wanted to get right up against what she might have felt during that period of time in her life when she was with him, her time on the East Coast. And I, I wanted to get into what she might have felt and thought and questioned, what she loved and fought and remembered and ached for. And I just wanted to bring that internal world to life. Their admiration of each other's work is inextricably linked to their love for each other. Tell us how their relationship began. Their relationship began before Stieglitz was aware of O'Keefe. You know, she had seen him when she was a student at the Art Students League. She had gone with a group of other students and she had gone to 291 and and she had seen him speaking passionately and vociferously about what art could be, should be, the purpose of of art in the world, culture and consciousness. They didn't formally meet until, you know, she would go by the gallery, but he didn't really recognize her until he received uh, role drawings of her, you know, her abstractions, her charcoals. And those were sent, you know, O'Keefe sent those from Texas to her friend Anita Pollitzer in New York, and Pollitzer brought them to Stieglitz. And when he unrolled those drawings, he he recognized just how revolutionary O'Keefe's artistic vision was. And their correspondence began shortly afterward. Now, he was in his mid-50s, nearly twice her age, but there was an instant attraction, a very strong sensual attraction. And one of the things you touch upon is that Georgia says, there are things this man values in me, things he wants. He treats me as an equal, more than equal. And for that reason alone, others will see that in me. Her association with him certainly sped up the process of her recognition. But she had some real mixed feelings about that, and a lot of that had to do with being the victim of what she felt was, uh, you call it genderization? Yeah, the gendered politics she faced. I, I believe that Stieglitz was passionately in love with her. And I think he was passionately in love with her as a woman. He had a fierce, even absolute faith in her art and in her artistic vision. And he, you know, for that, you know, that that called something, you know, deep in her. I mean, for her, her art was so primary and to be to be seen that way, you know, for, you know, the full range and power of what she was doing at the time with her abstractions, you know, that must have been an absolutely extraordinary experience to be seen by a famed modern art promoter and, you know, gallery owner in New York for a man to have, you know, he had such complete faith in her, not just as a female artist, but as an artist. And he really felt that what she was doing with her work um, was revolutionary. But I feel that the personal dynamics of their relationship, 
he loved her so deeply, but he really needed to control and orchestrate every single element of his life, including her. And, you know, his gendered, you know, the gendered interpretation of her art, because he, he launched the photographs of her, he showed, he exhibited the photographs, the nude photographs of her two years before he had the first major public showing of her art in New York. And when the initial critical language began to come out, she recognized that the language was really torqued through the lens, so to speak, of those photographs. Um, you know, she wanted to be seen as an artist, not as a female artist. She didn't want, you know, she believed that, you know, passion, sexual and otherwise, could be a key inspiration for creative work, but she resisted and ultimately refused to allow her art to be described in the purely gendered terms that were first assigned to it. And those were terms that he supported, mm -hmm. he abetted, um, and they were born out of, in many ways, the power dynamics in their relationship. One of the things I thought remarkable was your description of how she saw New York, gray geometric shapes and with Stiglitz, part of what enthralls her is the life that emanates from the way he captures light on objects. You know, even after the aspects of their love affair had ended, I feel that she always had faith in his vision as an artist. And I believe in, I think she said somewhere at some point that it was the art that kept them together. Mm -hmm. And I feel that, that that bond, that powerful, creative, you know, mixing of souls was something that, that, was, that was deeply relevant to her art and to her, to her spirit and being as an artist. Let's talk about their life together and particularly um, the earlier years of their life together. He left his wife for her and eventually they married. It seemed especially sad that she so desperately wanted a child and he thought it was a bad idea. He had a daughter from his first marriage. Do you think she would have been able to achieve the balance she thought she could from all the research you've done and and having read her memoirs. Was that the great void in her life? That is, again, such an amazing question. And it's one that I sat with for a long time. And my, my editor and I, I adore my editor, and, and we had a number of conversations on the phone about that particular point. Because I think it would be easy to say that given the restrictions and circumstances that she faced as a woman at that time, that she would not, she might not have been able to do both. But when I really sit with the kind of person that she was, that formidable, indomitable, ferocious spirit, mm -hmm. I have to believe that she would have been able to do both. I think so, too. And I really hated him for that. <laughs> <laughs> he was difficult. He was, I, I, that was another section of the novel. 
um, how the reader experienced him was something I had to rework and rework until it was right. Because in my early drafts, he was really hard for me to, you know, to to love. And and I needed I needed to love him. You know, I needed to love that, you know, wild, crazy passion that he had, that electrifying aspect of him. And I needed to love the human part of him in order to write about her love for him. Yeah, I mean, you know, she wasn't exactly conventional. I mean, they're already living together. She has posed nude and had no problem with the photos being shown publicly. And just the headline of the newspaper happens to be women win the right to vote. I mean, it's mind-boggling how just how much of unconventional life she was comfortable living, and yet his inability to remain his philandering, would you call it philandering, or would you just call it part of his sensuality that he had so many affairs while he was married to her? I would call it philandering because it was, um, I, I would absolutely call it philandering, and it was a betrayal. You know, for her, their love was so singular, and she believed in the singularity of it. You know, I I don't know if if my sense of that is judging him too harshly. Um, I think that he really believed that his love for other women did not compete with his love for her. Maybe that was just his way of justifying it. But it was so deeply hurtful to her. And it really broke her down, particularly because it seemed linked in some very subtle way to the the more the more he felt threatened by her life and by her success, the more he felt like she was just larger and and bigger in a sense, mm-hmm. the more those affairs came into play in their relationship. Yeah, he was insecure about his new work, and yet they did have a very positive influence on each other's works. And perhaps the greatest part of the love story was the professional admiration, but that wasn't enough to cure the heartbreak. When she eventually goes to New Mexico, for so many of us who know of her work, first and foremost through those paintings she did at Abiquiu and in Santa Fe, we're cheering her on. And yet, doesn't she acknowledge that at that point she realizes she was destined to be alone? I think she realizes that she's destined to be fully present to her solitude, which I think is a slight distinction. I feel that when she went to New Mexico, um, she really recognized just how deeply that solitude and the expanse and the, the, the largeness, the bigness of that distance and that landscape fed her soul. And that was never gonna fit with the life that he had in New York where he constantly needed to be engaged and interacting and bickering and um, celebrating and talking and, you know, just being engaged constantly with people. 
that need for solitude, that keen and driving need for solitude and being present to the life and the immensity of that particular landscape she fell in love with, to me that there's a sadness to it, but ultimately there's a level of triumph that she really you know, claimed who she was so thoroughly by making the choice to to live in a landscape and a place that she loved. In the preface to the book, you explained that um, you're having attended a show at the Whitney in 2009, an exhibition of her abstracts, was really what compelled you to write the book. Don't you think that she remained an abstract artist even while depicting real-life things? Absolutely. Absolutely. She continued to create abstractions throughout her lifetime, but she wasn't always identified with um, the, you know, the fact that she was really creating those abstract works before too many other American artists were really bold enough to explore that new language of art. But she did continue to to make abstractions throughout her lifetime. They weren't always shown as often as her, um, particularly those early abstractions. She didn't show those mm-hmm. until she was much older. Um, but she kept them, and they were they were works of hers that she really valued. And you you know you asked that you were you know you said that you were surprised when that Stieglitz did not support her doing the flowers. And what I noticed you know over the course of of you know just studying their their relationship and their and their life together is that he also didn't you know he didn't support her when she made her first city paintings mm. you know so anytime she was reaching out to just do something entirely new and on her own without speaking to him about it or or having any interaction with it whenever she was just reaching out to do something entirely different he he always had trouble with that because even though he was so innovative, even though he was such he was such a visionary himself, he was a man who was bound, you know, to he you know he would he would go back to the same bedroom in the same house year after year after year. He would go to stand to look out at the same view of that same lake again and again and again. You know, and she was a pioneer. When she wrote the short essay for her exhibition and said, I paint because color is a significant language for me. It was so important for her to have her own words because she felt no male artist had ever been written down the way she was. You write later on that she was considered an icon of the feminist movement in the 1970s. Yet she rejected that and and in some ways was rather annoyed by it. She eschewed all isms. I don't know that it was specifically feminism. I think it was any ism. She believed in the individual, you know, in the individual. She believed in the individual spirit and she believed in an individual life. I mean, that was the life that she that she forged. And I feel that also once she, you know, once she left New York and Stieglitz, you know, the rest of her life became just something that she she just did. You know, I I don't know that she ever really fully 
would understand the level of impact that she has had on you know generations of women since for the way she lived her life because to her she was just you know she's very common sense about it in the best possible way you know she just lived her life and just as she refused to be captive to the ism with feminism when she was confronted by a critic for somehow shortchanging society because her art didn't make a political statement. She said that, above all, she believed art was a personal struggle. It's very easy to understand the frustration she felt about being misunderstood, even though she was very successful. And I thought her nervous breakdown. I wasn't aware of that part of her life. And do you think that repression, that repressed desire for a child, the the despair over his philandering was was ultimately responsible for that? I don't actually. I the the event that really that really triggered it in real time, which was the Radio City conflict between them, the conflict over the job at Radio City, because that was when she realized that what the relationship, the damage that their relationship had wrought on her was, it wasn't just the philandering. I feel like she could have, you know, she could have eventually let that roll off her back. She would have been annoyed at it, but it wouldn't have really destroyed her. Um, And even the choice not to have a child, I think that was you know, sad and hard for her. But I also feel that that was something, too, that she could have overcome. But when she felt like in some way she had lost touch with her ability to create art on her own terms because of just all of the damage and the control, you know, in their relationship, I feel like that's what precipitated the breakdown But in many ways, her breakdown, you know, that galvanized her never to make that mistake again Mm -hmm. and live her life from that point on, on her own terms. Dawn, what was it like for you having completed the book? It was a hard book to write. It was a hard story to, you know, really be in for the number of years that I was in because I really felt such a responsibility to be true to the spirit of her story and to be, you know, to do it the best way that I could, you know, to rework it and rework it until I had it right. And when I finished it, you know, I didn't feel relief and I didn't feel sadness, but I was able to see the impact of her life and the impact of her choices And I was able to really feel how that had changed me. You know, when I I was born in 1968, I was born the year that her portrait graced the cover of Life magazine, that kind of iconic portrait of her when, you know, stark visions of a pioneer painter when she's, you know, she has her desert spreading out behind her. She's an older woman in her 80s. And there's the thumbnail image of, her cow skull, red, white, and blue in color alongside that. You know, that was an image that growing up was always really important to me. You know, that was the image of a woman who had chosen to 
go out and live in a landscape that she loved and and live her life on her own terms. But I think it was the process of writing this novel that allowed me to really own and understand the full extent of what that meant. Author Dawn Tripp in 2016, talking about her book, Georgia, a novel based on the life of Georgia O'Keeffe. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., a visit to the Emerald Isle. The Consul General of Ireland, Kiro Flynn, joins us with Irish poet Elaine Cosgrove. And we'll have wonderful music for St. Patrick's Day from Dr. Scott Stewart. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. Special thanks to Kevin Rinker. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.